Welcome back to the Khalil Osiris podcast. In this episode, Khalil will have a truth and reconciliation conversation with Melissa Nelson, the state attorney for the Fourth Judicial Circuit. Melissa created Florida's first legislatively funded Conviction Integrity Review Unit, which overturned the wrongful convictions of two men, Clifford Williams and Nathan Myers, who served 43 years in prison. Hi, Melissa, how are you today? I'm well, I'm Good. well. Good, well. It's nice to see you. It's great to <laughs> see you, and um, quite a lot has happened since last year and the awards ceremony, so uh, it's good to be back and in conversation from the momentum we built on last year. Uh, and I guess in the sense I kind of like just to like to get right into the conversation okay. of truth and reconciliation. Um, Nelson Mandela said that um, when we talk about reconciliation, ultimately it's a spiritual process, uh, which requires more than just a legal framework. In fact, he, he emphasized the importance of reconciliation being something that has to happen in our hearts and minds. And so I know that um, hearing that for some people it will seem like, well, we're, we're, we're ducking the real issue of why are people protesting and what's going on in the country. But first, I'd just like to hear what you think about reconciliation, especially in this uh, turbulent time. I think it is important and I think it is powerful. And I certainly think from my vantage point as a stakeholder in the criminal justice system, so often the justice system denies people harmed um, and people who offend the opportunity for reconciliation. Um, and I know it can make all the difference. So I, I believe in it. I've always believed personally the power of I'm sorry. I believe it in my own, my own life. I try to teach my children um, the power of both being able to say I'm sorry and the power to grant forgiveness. So I, um, I think reconciliation, I agree that it is something that has to come from within. It can't be forced. It can't be uh, dictated by policy. But when it's genuine and when it does come from um, within people, what can come from it is incredible. Wow. It's peace that yes, can come from it. Exactly. And, you know, when I, when I think about your role in the context of the criminal justice system, it's as a state attorney, it's a very powerful role. It's, it's a role it is. that, it, I mean, I think of the major stakeholders when we're having conversations about criminal justice reform. And for me, the prosecutor's role is central. And do you see it that way? I do. Um, I, the prosecutor has immense power. Um, and uh, really within, within the confines of the law, but really enormous discretion. And how the prosecutor uses that power and that discretion can either further engender healing in a community, um, trust in the system, or if abused, it can do the, have the opposite effect. So it's um, the prosecutor and the power that the prosecutor uh, yields is, is incredibly important. And that's why people who hold these positions of public trust um, 
ha have to maintain that trust. So we have to um, ensure that we are using our power and our discretion fairly, equitably, um, appropriately. And where we fail or make a mistake, that that we that we own it. Yes. Well, when when I was coming um, into your office in the lobby area, there's two wonderful women uh, there who greeted me and. Um, and they, I mean, they were just so pleasant, and so I started talking with them, and I noticed on the wall there's a picture, there's kind of a, a montage of the photos of state attorneys for the entire history of the, right. the state attorneys in, in Jacksonville specifically, right. and, and, and I, so I, I was struck by the fact that there were only two women that I saw there, and no African Americans, but only two women? And so I asked the two ladies there, is that an accurate representation of our history here in Jacksonville in terms of states, state attorneys? And they said, barring a few guys who are left off, uh, yes. And the lady, the, elder, the older lady there looked at me and she said, don't look surprised. Don't act like you're surprised. And I just, I looked and I said, no, I'm not surprised. She said, and that means we have work to do. That's right. So you as only the second, you're only the second woman to be in this position. And you actually have come in with statements about changing the culture. So I want to juxtapose this with the okay. marches that are happening right now. And knowing you, the emphasis that you've put on trust between communities, and our legal system, our criminal justice system. How is this impacting you and your office? Um, great question um, in really profound ways, frankly. So internally, um, we are having uh, discussions, lots of discussions about um, how people feel personally, what their personal experiences are um, about both the civil unrest and um, the demands at least of local demonstrators that specifically implicate our office and the work of our office. And those conversations sometimes are hard to have, but they're really important. And so externally, um, it's also the local demonstrations um, and the, the demands on our office specifically have really forced us to um, circle around the table and think about important issues that, frankly, were not um, on our priority agenda even six weeks ago, but are now. And so I have been, you know, several weeks ago I came to the office to watch uh, a demonstration, and I will tell you I was so moved by um, in gratitude that I live in a country where we enjoy such freedom and the right to petition. The people can petition their government and, and then the government can react. And, and, and we specifically, as it relates to, um, for exam example, the public release of body-worn camera footage, a very important topic, trending both nationally but um, locally as well. We've listened to the petitions of the people and, um, and are working to develop a policy that will actually be responsive to the petitions of the people. And so I, um, in, in 
watching this at least locally, um, I've really felt um, um, a sense of gratitude for living in a country where this this can occur. Uh, that said, I've also um, you know, been sad to hear about some of the personal experiences of um, colleagues that have been my colleagues for a long time that I never knew about until um, conversations have been spurred because of, of this moment we find ourselves in. So a level of honesty and openness sure. to, to talk about race and diversity. And, and the intersection of race and the justice system and certainly, to your point, diversity. Yes. I, I, first of all, um, because I know the work that you have been doing in the space of criminal justice reform um, that goes beyond this moment. I know that it's not something that's just a fanciful um, kind of issue for you. I, I'm aware it's of the, the legislatively funded conviction review unit that, that you spearheaded. Um, I'd, I'd actually like you to talk a little bit about that because I think so often it's easy to just pigeonhole responses to what's going on or it's, it's easy to say someone's just doing something as a reaction to the moment, but I'd like to have, I'd like to tease out your motivation for spearheading that legislatively funded initiative, um, which is leading the country actually in, in, this, in this space. So um, when we talk about, again, the public trust and, and reconciliation um, and the power of recognizing mistake and being accountable for mistakes. That's not just individually, that's um, systems, institutions. And so it was important to me and my administration that this, words can be empty. And this was a sign that we take this very seriously. And we did not um, seek the funding or set up this unit either for a PR stunt, and we didn't do it because we thought that there had been a, a great swath of mistakes we needed to rectify. What We didn't know, but we did it because we wanted people to have faith that where mistakes have been made, and this is a human system that um, depends on humans, and we all make mistakes, um, so that where we as a system had made mistakes. We were willing to review them and rectify them. Um, we didn't know where the effort would lead us. As you are very familiar, um, it, it led us to overturn um, the convictions of two men who'd been in prison for almost 43 years, wrongfully convicted um, and released from prison. And so I, I really, um, I really think and hope that that the public knows when, um, you know, when they're in a courtroom, um, when they're on the other side of us, uh, adverse to us, that they have faith no matter the outcome that we are acting with integrity. That's really important. And so this effort was important to that end. And it's important certainly for um, those two men, Nathan Myers and Clifford Williams. Yes. And, and he said the, the prayer of his prayers over all those years. Uh, he wept as he told the story, and um, 
Dr. Mandela last year was so moved by that story and the action that you took that she personally um, gave Clifford a, a set of the Struggle Series um, artwork from her father. So It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, she was just in tears. Um, and she said, her, her comment uh, was that this is how justice can work. And so, um, and, and no one could, I'm sure, be more thrilled than Clifford and his nephew. Uh, Nathan texted me a photo this week of his new home. Wow. So amazing. So amazing. And I wonder, I struggle when we talk about this is how justice can work. I'm like, what is just about the fact that they lost decades, decades of their life, right. lives um, that we can't get back? And they're both so optimistic about that there was a purpose. Yes. Um, they're an instrument of something larger. Yes. Um, and all that they lost and sacrificed was for, for meaning that maybe we can't fully understand right now. Um, but, but certainly the, the value and the, the, the initiative of the conviction integrity is uh, borne out in um, those two men. Without a doubt. And I, giving special attention to the fact that it's legislatively funded. Um, and a recurring appropriation, which absolutely. at the time I was so politically naive, I didn't appreciate how significant that was. It's unheard of. Um, when we went to Tallahassee and asked for the appropriation, I didn't know what to expect, and it was my first effort ever in lobbying uh, for, for anything. And our, our local delegation and our lawmakers saw the value in this, the importance in this. And um, when we came away with, during a year where there were cuts across the, the state um, with a, an appropriation that wasn't just a one-time appropriation, but something that we could build, up, build and would be sustained, is just remarkable. I, I again, it's one of those um, unsung moments that has massive impact uh, in the struggle for criminal justice reform. So I, I'm very grateful for it, but there's, something further that you've done, your office has done, that you've spearheaded that uh, stands out to me as a concrete example of what's possible in the space of criminal justice reform, and that is um, you agreed to participate in a study being done by the uh, MacArthur Foundation, um, participating with three other major cities, um, offering a level of transparency into what actually happens that opaque space of prosecutorial conduct and machinations. You, you opened yourself up to that. Why? I say we opened the kimono. Yes. <laughs> we, we did. <laughs> um, because I believe that uh, if you're talking about reforming policies, improving policies, they should be driven, um, they should be evidence-based, and they should be driven by data. And there were a lot of questions that I had that I didn't know the answers to. And I'm not a social scientist. Um, and the language of data can be very intimidating, but I appreciate its value. I spent some time in the private sector. And when you are working in a for-profit industry, um, metrics matter. And Absolutely. everything is measured. And I also believe what gets measured um, is um, also what gets funded and it's what how we hold ourselves accountable and specifically 
I've always been interested in the issue of race in the justice system. And so to study, how are we doing? Um, and then the culmination of the project and the study will actually be the publication of metrics, indicators, by which we will publicly hold ourselves to account um, to our community and hopefully will be a model for other offices to follow suit so that the public can know how we are doing on a variety of um, different uh, decision points. But as, as to the study on race, we again didn't know where it was going to take us. They measured five different points on the decision-making spectrum of a prosecutor to see if race was playing a minimal factor or a major factor. And um, the conclusions of the study were, were that race were, was not and ethnicity were not playing a factor in our decision-making points, with the exception of, of one area, which was diversion. So by doing the, by undergoing this project and opening ourselves up to study, we learned something we otherwise would not have known, and we were able to remediate it. And so that's the value, I think, of um, participating in an effort that can really, I saw it as a, a way for us to examine ourselves and then identify where there were issues and fix them. It gave our our um, office also a lot of confidence. People um, were skeptical because this was something new that we had not done before. And the idea that somebody would be looking at your data and potentially um, manipulating it, that there was some skepticism. But in the end, we got to know actually the researchers very well. They've become very good friends of the office and the individuals in this office, and they um, gained and earned our trust. And so um, in the end, it was people are now more comfortable with the idea. Let's, let's look at data. Let's look how we can use it better to inform policy and reform in a way that makes sense for people, not just as ad hoc or, to your point, reactive to a moment. Yes. I, I think that just in terms of our conversations um, regarding truth and reconciliation, it's important for people to have context. And, um, and that's why I wanted to go back and talk with awardees from last year who've had an opportunity you know, to be reflective about Nelson Mandela, number one. I uh, look at the piece of art that I won last year every morning, and I put it in a place that everyone who comes to my office sees it. Yeah, it's, it is such a, a special opportunity uh, for us to link um, these struggles that we're having as human beings everywhere on the planet right now, actually. Um, we're being asked to reevaluate things that we've taken for granted or maybe things that we haven't even thought about. Uh, for you personally, you were mentioning how it's actually surprised you to hear some of your friends, people that you have shared career moments with and some personal moments with, but to hear them talk about their experiences in ways so different. How has that um, impacted you, Melissa, to, to hear these stories um, as people talk about racism and injustice and personal stories, the, the personal things. How has it affected you? Um, it's made me wonder why I didn't know about these things before. 
Um, and I thought, okay, well, I, maybe I didn't ask about it before. Um, so, or was there a space where people felt comfortable to um, talk about their personal experiences? And it's underscored for me um, how important diversity within our ranks is, um, not just in race and gender, though that's very important, but in life experience. Because if we all share a very similar life experience and see the world through a very similar lens, um, that, and we don't reflect the community that we are sworn to serve every day, um, that's not good for anybody. And so it's really also underscored the importance of, um, in our recruitment efforts, melding an incoming class that um, demonstrates a spectrum of life experience. Um, I think that that's important. Wow. Well, so my whole philosophy, Melissa, is you can curse the darkness, you can complain about everything that's wrong, or you can commit yourself to being an alternative of what's possible. That's awesome. So I'd rather use my energy giving witness to what's possible, even in the midst of what seems impossible. That's and, awesome. And I can prove it because there's individuals, no matter where you go, how bad it looks, who are doing what you're doing, who are doing what I'm doing, and we have to look for them. And when we look for them, suddenly they multiply. It's very true, too. So looking is a multiplier. And so I'm about setting that intent to look. So I'm multiplying what's possible in the midst of people complaining about what's not. And that's what I see your role as. I see your role as an example of Will someone. you send that to me in an email? Because that's yeah. really beautiful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's very true. Th that's That's... It's the simplest way for a person without reading some big books to grasp what they can do with it's the power they have. So one thing we didn't talk about that, but that I'm very excited about, and you talk about reconciliation, yeah. is um, restorative justice. So we hired, oh. we're the, we hired a restorative justice specialist. And um, The Atlantic is actually getting ready to publish an article um, oh, wow. on, we have clumsily, before we had professional, a professional on board here, uh, had three cases where we mediated um, a restorative justice session ourselves. And in two cases, it was successful. And in one, it was a disaster. Yeah. So they're going to juxtapose. Um, and I think in the one that it didn't work well, the mm -hmm. family was pretty distraught. Yes. Um, with us and we'll be criticized in the piece for you know not doing it we're not professionals which i conceded yeah but i am hopeful that that uh the platform will launch a lot of local interest in it because i think there's so much good that can come from it i would love to contribute to that okay. in some way i mean i would absolutely love it because um number one i uh, was ve have been very involved in restorative justice initiatives around the country, but in South Africa as well. Right. Well, that's so that I, I am fascinated by. Yeah. So that that is there's a 
and I would even um, get um, some comments from Dr. Mandela because this is, okay, she was most interested in what you're doing because her belief is that it's protesting is fine, but you have to actually engage the system internally, you, mm -hmm. her core philosophy. And, and her thing is women's issues as a lead. But so when I told her the story about what happened, she was of the view that these are the models we need to kind of highlight to people. So we're doing a, a thing, and why this conversation is so important with you is because we want to highlight this restorative justice element, strain that's throughout all of this, this work. And so um, I am completely um, committed to that process. And here's the deal, Melissa. I know that there are people who go to prison who are innocent. I, I, I have no doubt about that. The vast majority of us who are there have done something to be there. And here's a further point that I'm able to say. I was actually there for less than what I did. As bad as my sentence right. was, I did more than I was arrested for. And that's the case. I have never met a person in my time in prison, and I've met thousands, who went in an honest conversation did not disclose something that they have done that they didn't get caught for. So my thing is this. This issue of accountability has to happen on all sides. The truth-telling has to happen on all sides. I've got to come to the conversation with a willingness to say to you, you know what, I did a whole lot more than you caught me for. And, I, and my reckoning is I'm going to come clean about it, and I'm going to change. And I'm going to tell every other person that I know who knows that truth, who has that, who is a keeper of that secret, take the lid off of it. If we really say that we want in this historic, important moment, change, I got to do my part like I want you to do yours. It's so true. And my part is I got to come clean about some things that uh, for many of us, we've used excuses to hide. We've and and, I and the way the system is built, it's built. Look, our constitution is amazing, but it is built to protect the accused. Yes. So the accused is provided counsel that tells the accused not to make any statements, not to say anything. There is in a courtroom. I I, I realized this after one of these sessions. We had to drop a, a a cold case because a witness died, and I thought maybe. Maybe this man will come to the table because it was a 43-year-old case. The uh, next of kin were small children. Their father had been shot and killed in a, a convenience store robbery. And the, they were now older than I, but they had grown up their whole lives with questions. So he came to the table right here, sat in here. And their mom, the widow, came. She had never remarried. She was very um, reticent. She said, I'm only here because my son really has these questions. He did not mitigate anything. He told everything that happened that day. He then said his entire life he'd become a street performer in New Orleans. His entire life, and he, he knew the convenience store owner, and he had been, I think, 16 at the time this happened. He said he used to give me candy when I would come in. I knew him, and he said that he carried such guilt about um, 
what he had done, that whenever he had an opportunity in New Orleans to do something nice for children, he would do it in this victim's honor. So I, he answered every question and at the end, Nadia, who was intended, had told me before she was not going to say anything, she looked at him and she said, I forgive you. So I, when he walked out, he walked out of jail that day, I was like, had we gone to trial, he would have maintained his innocence. Yes. He had a GoFundMe account. The, uh, the, a lot of the community had accused us of having the wrong man. He would, even if convicted, he would have maintained his innocence. There Absolutely. would have been a division about whether we were right or wrong. The family never would have had their questions answered. So they might have gotten a pound of flesh, but for what? Like no healing would have occurred. Yes. And when he left, I was like, he left with more than I think actually they did. I, oh. It was remarkable, but I'm like, so we have this system and I can't contemplate how it would look any other way. It has to protect the rights of the accused, but it does not engender any store of restoration at all. It's, there's none and not. So the victim might get five minutes in a sentencing hearing about what happened, but they, they can't ask a direct question. It's, it's, it functions in a way that is fundamentally adversarial and yes. disadvantageous to the person Both. who has suffered the harm. Correct. And there is no real accountability in terms of any form of restore, restorative no. justice in the process because restoration has to happen with accountability. Sure, yes. It has to start with a, an a absolute willingness to say, I'm holding me accountable for, what I, for the harm right. I've, I've done. And I recognize that cyclically, in terms of the systemic inequalities, that many people who hurt others have been wounded themselves. I recognize sure. that. And so those are challenges, real challenges. The thing for me is when, when I went to prison, having committed a robbery at 17 years old, when I got to prison, there was, number one, I denied that I committed the robbery. That's to start with. Sure. And my lawyers advised me very clearly that um, I should plead not, uh, that I should plead not guilty. Right. And that process went on, and the more I pled it, the, the, the more convinced I was that this was the right course of action. Uh, so I lied. I flat out lied about having done it. I went to prison, and when I got to prison, there was nothing to hold me accountable. In fact, my feelings about having been wronged myself deepened and intensified so that by the time I got out at 22, the idea of being restored had basically been beaten out of me. I mean, that wasn't even a realistic option. What I do know, though, is that at 17, I actually was prepared for someone to challenge me on how wrong I was and for someone to say to me, now, are you willing to be accountable for what you've done? And at 17, I can tell you, my mother could have that conversation with me still at 17 and I would cry and say, yes, I did do it. And I'm not telling you that in the abstract. I'm telling you that because in my case, 
My mother did ask me had I committed that crime, and I did tell my mother I did, and my mother had me arrested. You see, the person who told on me, the person who brought the police to my home was my mother. So I knew that I was responsible for something. I knew that I had to take accountability. And that's the thing that I'm actually saying that all of us need to do. Have the courage to say you're responsible for what you've done and then have the courage to do something different. That's what reconciliation is. That's where rest restoration has to happen. Restorative justice is about that. When and it's I, powerful when it happens for everybody. We don't know what it looks like. We've got to experiment. We've, we've got to make some errors along the way. Right, which I did. <laughs> but that's quite okay. I think that's what it's about. That's how we get there. So um, anything I can do to support. Well, I'm going to make the, I'll, I'll make the introduction to Nick is his name. Um, I have really great hopes for this. When you talk about alternatives, like this is a very real, and it's not in lieu of like our traditional prosecution, but it is, and if you think back in your own, in your own case, like how angry you were when you went to prison and, and this belief construct yes. that only was, um, became more entrenched, if there was this opportunity, um, for real reckoning yeah. the internal change that would happen. And I, I don't know, I just think, I don't know. We yearn for it as human beings. Yes. It's like, isn't it, a, I mean, if you have a conscious, like we've yes. got some sociopaths, but very few very, sociopaths yes. are in prison. Like that's a small segment of the population. Exactly. Most of us have conscience. We do. And, and we yearn yes. for accountability. I really, I, we're on the same page with this. I, I know that that's I know that that's in the human species DNA. It's how we have survived against seemingly insurmountable odds as a single species. <laughs> that's true. It had to be there. I call it the algorithm of kindness, the algorithm of goodness. It's there. We haven't maybe measured it in the ways that we've measured climate change, but I know that there's an algorithm of kindness, that there's an algorithm of joy that speaks to our best. Correct. And restorative justice just provides a space and an opportunity for all of us when harm has been done to still speak from the space of our higher angels. I agree. I'd just like to say thank you for thank you. The, the work that you're doing. Um, thank you for staying abreast of it. It matters. It's important and thank you for highlighting it. Um, it's yeah. It's making a difference to people on the front lines in ways that goes beyond rhetoric. It's nice, James Baldwin I think said it best, it's easier to cry than to change. So there's a lot of people. Change is not easy. Change is so hard. It's so hard for all of us. And so you're moving the needle in a way um, that will be impactful long beyond your individual role and your individual time in that position. And I'm grateful to you for thank thinking you. beyond yourself. 
Well, thank you. I hope that's in fact true. Thank you for listening to the Khalil Osiris podcast. Tune in to the next episode to hear Khalil's truth and reconciliation conversation with Kent Justice, a reporter and anchor for News for Jax, WJCT. Thank you.